Hello, boys and girls. It's <laughs> a fucking creepy way to start. Why is that the start? You wrote that. Why is that the scripted beginning? Because I'm very creative. I'm a very artistic person. Is that what creativity is? Yes. Thanks. <clears throat> Hello, Hello, boys and girls. girls. And welcome to yet another episode of Heaven and Heaven. The secret word for today is... Noabamam. John! We've alluded to this concept at least 666 times at this point, but we finally get to seriously unpack it today. Are you ready to perform a full-body cavity search on the concept of Noabam? I wish you would phrase things normally, but sure. <laughs> I think when I wrote that, I had your sigh response <laughs> in, my, in my head. <laughs> well, as the diligent student that I know you are, could you perhaps remind our lovely audience precisely what this wacky, cumbersome acronym actually stands for? New wave of British heavy metal. That is correct. Yes, he didn't even prompt me, guys. I just remembered that. That's one for me. I'd say it's one for me as your teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, tenure track board. So today we're going to look at this crucial formative period when a new, leaner and meaner strain of heavy metal rose from the ashes of the late 70s British punk scene and truly began the epic quest for complete and total heavy metal cultural domination of the 1980s. Let's contextualize all of this a bit. John, could you read us this nice quote, preferably in something of a Canadian accent? The new wave of British heavy metal is super important because it really helped define heavy metal. You had a uniform. You had four or five songs on every record about how great it was to be metal. No ballads. The playing was elevated. Everything about these bands was heavy metal. So really, if you could go back and find shreds of things that define heavy metal along the way, this was the place where all of them came together. You know, for someone from Alaska, your Canadian is uh, less than fluent. As an Alaskan, we despise Canada. Oof, good to know. So, <laughs> that was Canadian music journalist Martin Popoff, who came of age during the period in question. And this is a genre slash period which played a large role in firmly establishing a number of important heavy metal paradigms. Number one, a clearly defined visual aesthetic for fans and bands. Number two, the idea that a prominent theme in heavy metal lyrics is how awesome heavy metal is. Number three, the fact that ballads are for wankers. And number four, the importance of musical facility. John, based on what you currently know about heavy metal, which admittedly is still vanishingly little, mm -hmm. uh, would you agree that each of these things seem fairly important? I will allow that they clearly all did have a distinct visual aesthetic, though I see how that bears little relevance on the music. Uh, they do tend to talk about how great they are a lot, which mm. is fairly masturbatory and exhausting. <laughs> uh, you literally were just pointing out a ballad to me on mm -hmm. one of the albums we're about to talk about, so I'm a bit confused by yeah, that. Yeah, well, we're going to discuss that. I and musical facility is questionable oh. from band to band. Oh, okay. Yeah, it certainly varies from 
level level. But if, again, you're kind of when you're comparing that with say punk. Sure, it, they all sucked. Yeah, yeah. So no one no one knew what they were doing. Right, right. So as edgy music goes, musical facility certainly plays a more important role in heavy metal. Now, as you pointed out, I also agree that the thing about ballads is a bit complicated. I suppose it really depends on what we mean by ballad. So how would you, John, define the term ballad in this pop music context? Whitney Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You. All right, so that's the ur-text <laughs> for a ballad, is what you're telling me? Yep. Okay. Well, traditionally, a ballad was... Eric, a... fuck tradition. <laughs> it's all about Whitney Houston covering Dolly It is Dolly all Parton. about Whitney Houston covering Dolly Parton. All right. <laughs> According to some folks, a ballad was a narrative poem that could be sung in presentation. But in contemporary usage, we typically use the term to refer to, as Merriam-Webster puts it, a slow, romantic, or sentimental song. Wow, Merriam-Webster appearing in the podcast. I know, isn't that nice? Citation included. So, well, I might personally be inclined to call Iron Maiden songs like Remember Tomorrow or Strange World Ballads or the Angel Witch song Sorcerers, which I pointed out to you. I suppose it's fair to say that while they are slow, they aren't particularly romantic or sentimental. Would you agree with that? So I guess the contention would be that uh, we can have slow songs, they just can't talk about love. Yeah, they can't be schmaltzy love songs. But I love chicken fat. I also love chicken fat. I used to work at a restaurant as a singing waiter where they served it as a condiment that they poured onto their steaks. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a Jewish restaurant. I I I didn't want to assume, but it kind of has to be. Yeah. Well, we're splitting hairs here. Regardless, what we're talking about when we talk about the Nawabum is a period that lasted roughly from 1979 through 1983 when a large bunch of heavy metal bands that incorporated the same sort of grimy DIY approach as punk rock emerged from the ashes of a punk movement that simply could not sustain the innate contradiction of punk being the hottest, most lucrative musical style around. So as punk exploded into a zillion 80s pop movements, like New Wave, New Romantic, Post-Punk, etc., the Nawabum bands were there, ready for their time in the sun. So John, were you aware that at one point there were more Nawabum bands than there were grains of sand on every beach on planet Earth? I don't know how you could possibly prove that. It's a true story. That's like, that, can't, that genuinely can't be true. Okay, no, it's not true. But but there were a ridiculously large number of bands associated with this movement. to a desert? On a horse with no name. Mm. <laughs> All right, uh, there is a lot of Nawabo bands. Are you willing to accept that as a true I, premise? I have to believe you. Thank you. You don't have I to. I have to assume that one of us did research for this <laughs> podcast. Oh, I thought that was you. <laughs> It's going to be bad. (laughs) So, despite the vast volume of bands, a couple of those went on to be superstars. A few continue to be underground heroes to this very day, but most, as you can probably expect, sucked. (laughs) They simply popped on to a compilation or two and then disappeared into obscurity nearly as quickly as they had emerged. And so it goes. We've already discussed what was probably the single most important album of the Nawabum, Iron Maiden's 1980 debut, which John liked. I did. Yeah, great album. Great album. As such, they'll only make a brief cameo or two today. What we'll mainly be focusing on is the more general history of the Nawabum, and in particular detail on just a few of the other most significant bands and albums that emerged from this movement specifically in the year 1980. 
This, incidentally, will include one band which actually went on to become arguably a bigger commercial success than even the mighty Iron Maiden. John, do you have an idea who that might be? Is it Journey? <laughs> okay, okay, now if I take a serious guess based on the bands that you gave me to listen to, as uh -huh. I can only remember two of the four, I have to assume that it was Def Leppard. Good for you. I need a bell. Someone give me a bell. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. The mighty Def Leppard, who have sold so many damn albums, it's pretty unbelievable. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, so before we talk about specific artists and albums, let's set the stage and meet some of the foundational people and places of the Nawabum. You ready, Freddy? Let's go. Everybody listening, close your eyes, unless you are driving, and try to imagine yourself situated amongst the hubbub of a traditional British pub. There are a bunch of cockney accents, occasional shrill laughter, uh, governor, oh, the powerful smell of stale beer all around you. There's some killer fresh hard rock blaring over the PA. The place where you currently find yourself on this journey of the month is the back room of the Prince of Wales pub in Kingsbury, a district of Northwest London, the birthplace of the Nawabum. John, I have a picture. Take a look. Could you describe the outside of the Prince of Wales pub? It's got that sort of um, stereotypical English design of like a cottage. It's yeah. got the all white top with what looks like a brick foundation mm -hmm. and base. It has a garishly large sign. A little bit. But otherwise it looks like exactly what you'd expect pretty much. Yeah, but it's nice. Yeah. yeah, I think it looks delightful. I would definitely be happy to hoist a pint or six there, although it was apparently demolished back in 2007. Womp womp. Yeah, sad. Anyhow, circa 1975, the hip new DJ blaring the aforementioned hard rock was a fellow named Neil Kay, who specialized in playing hard rock and heavy metal albums by emerging young local bands. And so the back room of the Prince of Wales pub in 1975 was where the heavy metal sound house was born. This key Nawabum establishment was immortalized in 1979 via Iron Maiden's legendary self-released EP, The Soundhouse Tapes. John, do you remember us briefly discussing The Soundhouse Tapes? Briefly. It's that three-song version of Iron Maiden's original four-track demo that mm -hmm. they publicly released, and it's worth lots of money, so I'm expecting a copy for uh, maybe my birthday? From me? Yeah! That's cute. It'd be sentimental, because we do a heavy metal podcast, and it's uh, a heavy metal treasure. And I'm well known for my sentiment. <laughs> yes, and your generosity. <laughs> so, Kay was a formative figure in this emerging new movement. He not only played local albums at the Soundhouse, but he also kept careful track of audience requests, so that he could create ranked charts of which bands were most popular with his audience. These charts were then published in a weekly music magazine called Sounds, so kids all around the UK could learn about which new metal bands were the coolest and most requested, whether or not they could actually get into the pub. Speaking of Sounds, not only was it something of a clearinghouse for charts, interviews, and information about all of these cool new bands, but it was in a 1979 article by Sounds journalist Jeff Barton that the world first saw the term new wave of British heavy metal. The Nawabum was born. It's worth noting that it was actually apparently Barton's editor, Alan Lewis, who coined the term. Credit where credit is due. 
So between the venue, the magazine, and a bunch of extra side work Neil Kay was doing, recording and producing demos for many of these same bands, the Nawabum was a legitimate movement by the end of the 1970s. And these bands were absolutely ready to explode onto the international music scene. Alrighty then. We can talk about the Nawabum until we're blue in the face, but let's get some music into our ears. It's time to pause for some assigned listening. Although their career didn't have anything like the legs that Iron Maidens would have, in 1980, the band Saxon was arguably the biggest of all the Nawabum bands. They already had one album out, a self-titled debut from 1979, and both of their two, yes two, classic 1980 albums, Wheels of Steel and Strong Arm of the Law, are quintessential works of the early Nawabum. Let's check out one of my very favorite Nawabum tunes, To Hell and Back Again from Strong Arm of the Law. This way we can begin to get some sense of just what it is we've got going on here musically. As always, there is a link in the show notes and we suggest pausing the podcast and blasting some classic Saxon here heard in all their youthful Nawabum glory. That's what John and I are gonna do. Let's go! gets me so pumped. John, do you feel like you've been to hell and back again? That's one way to put it. You look like you've been to hell and <laughs> back <you>. again. <laughs> so, look, if I am to be totally honest, overall, Saxon is really not one of my favorite metal bands. I find them a bit, as John might say, fine. <laughs> Still, they were a wildly important band in their time, and their three most classic albums are from the very heart of the Nawabum period, the aforementioned Wheels of Steel and Strong Arm of the Law, and also Denim and Leather from 1981, and what could be more of an assertion of heavy metal glory than Denim and Leather? That's a weird choice for an album title. Yeah, a little bit. All three albums are actually really solid and certainly well worth a look. And as I mentioned, I absolutely love To Hell and Back Again, which is my favorite of the Saxon songs. John, did you like To Hell and Back Again? Yeah, I mean, yeah. As you said, it's fine. That song's not fine. I didn't say that song was... That song's amazing. Okay. It's good. So you agree with me that it's amazing. Sure. Shut up. You can have this one. Oh, oh, good. Thank you. Actually, was... Very kind of you. <laughs> Saxon have always been a much bigger band in Europe than here in God's country. Oh, God. The U.S. of F and A. <laughs> and while they may not be a, so much, <laughs> they may not be a household name to all of our listeners, they have managed to sell a not unimpressive 15 million albums worldwide. That's 15 million more than you. Yeah. Well, on that note, do you think by the time that this episode goes to air, we'll have hit 15 million podcast listeners? When does this air? Uh... No, you're making me do complicated math. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The answer is no. (laughs) It'll still be the year 2022. Yes, no. No, you don't think that. I I also do not think that. Saxon formed in the UK in 1977 and were originally called Son of a Bitch. That's a much better name. (laughs) I think it's a really good name. Yeah. And uh, now, <laughs> son, son of a bitch! bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I completely concur. Yeah. It's, it's a better name. <laughs> the classic Saxon lineup consisted of Biff Byford, vocals, Graham Oliver, guitar, Paul Quinn, guitar, Steve Dawson, bass, and Pete Gill, drums. I think possibly the most important fact of all about Saxon is that in 1981, a fellow named Harry Shearer spent three days on the road with the band in an effort to get a sense of what life was like for a touring metal band. John, are you familiar with Harry Shearer? No. Well, not only does he voice many characters on the show The Simpsons, 
But Harry Shearer also co-wrote and co-starred in a rather germane 1984 film called This is Spinal Tap. Shearer played bassist Derek Smalls. Apparently, some amount of inspiration for this classic movie was gleaned from time spent with our good buddies in Saxon. Such fun! I assume you've seen This is Spinal Tap? No. <gasps> you've never seen? Oh my god! It's long been on my list of things to watch. But oh. I think, you know, I know all the important references oh. at this point from right. having existed in society. Right. Well, we're going to have to have a Heavy Metal 101 watch party at some point. I'm fine with that. Wow. That's it a, is It is something that I genuinely want to see. I just yeah. keep forgetting. It's a great movie, but you will recognize all of the famous bits, I'm sure. Okay, so before moving on any further, I do want to address the warthog in the room. John. Have you noted the shadowy figure of a gigantic tusked beast that has been looming over us throughout this entire discussion? No. Yeah, I didn't think you would. You're very unobservant. Uh, that is factual. <laughs> you see, it is the shadow of a warthog named Snaggletooth, who is the delightfully hideous mascot of our good pals, Motorhead. So here's the thing. Depending on your sources... How the fuck are you sneaking Motorhead into this conversation? <laughs> there will not be an episode for the rest of this show's existence oh, that doesn't <laughs> prominently feature Motorhead. No, no, it really, it really is organic, the discussion. Uh, see, the thing is, if you research the Nawabum, there are many places where you're going to find Motorhead listed as one of the leading bands of the new wave of British heavy metal. And it is fair to note that Motorhead's period of greatest artistic and commercial success were the four albums they released from 1979 through 1982, right in the thick of the Nawabum. However, I feel quite strongly that Motorhead were a band who benefited from the excitement surrounding the Nawabum, but who distinctly emerged in the latter part of that first wave of British heavy metal, which was really the focus of our early episodes in season number one. They released their debut all the way back in 1977, and that is distinctly prior to the Nawaba movement. So, John, are you okay with us considering Motorhead as an inspiration, but not as an actual Nawaba band? All of these distinctions feel rather arbitrary to me, so we can call them whatever you want. So you're saying I'm, I'm in charge here? Yes. Okay. I am ever so pleased. I think it is pretty well agreed upon at this point that the first wave of the Nawabum consisted of bands who released debut albums between 1979 and 1981. So that's what we're going to stick with here today. I didn't make this up. This is the agreed upon consensus of scholars like myself. It's very academic of you, I have to Thank say. you. Thank you. I'll Thank give you credit for that. <laughs> circles and it circles. It wasn't me. It was me. <laughs> it, was, it was me and my friends. <laughs> 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 so, in fact, all of the remaining music we'll be focusing on today is from debut albums released in the year 1980, so we are in very safe territory with these selections. Speaking of music we'll be focusing on today, earlier we briefly mentioned a Nawabam band that grew to rival even the mighty Iron Maiden over the course of the 1980s. It's now time to let the Sheffield-born cat out of the bag and discuss a band with not one, but two albums certified diamond which means that each of those albums sold over 10 million copies. We are, of course, talking about one of the most commercially successful bands of all time, those delightfully accessible songsmiths, Def Leppard. So, John, I'm assuming you were at least passingly familiar with Def Leppard before you were listening? I mean, I've definitely heard that name, and I'm sure if you played for me their biggest hits, I would recognize them. Pour some sugar on me. Uh-huh, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Photograph, do you know that one? Look at this photograph. What the fuck was that? <laughs> 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 
know. <laughs> oh, God. Did you just put a Nickelback <laughs> reference on this? <sighs> Still accepting applications for a replacement post. So am I. <laughs> anyway. So, is there anything else you can tell us about Def Leppard? About my prior knowledge to Def yeah, Leppard? Yeah, yeah. Or my re- No, I have no other prior wow. knowledge. Wow, okay. All right. I will say, in fairness to Def Leppard, that they do not like to be associated with either heavy metal generally, nor the no album specifically. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Singer Joe Elliott is pretty fucking irritating that way. Well, it is certainly true that by 1983's mega-hit album, Pyromania, the first of their Diamond certified releases, Def Leppard had completely broken away from the Nawabum. Each of their first two albums, and most particularly their 1980 debut, On Through the Night, fit squarely into that scene, and that's how we're going to deal with it. Sorry, Joe. We still love you. Def Leppard formed in the city of Sheffield, which is apparently about 40 miles due east of Manchester. Apparently. I've looked it up. I don't know. Why are you saying apparently? That's just a fact. (laughs) You surprised? (laughs) Did you know where Sheffield was? No, fuck the UK. I don't even know where Manchester is. No, you're just saying words. (laughs) Well, for for our UK listeners, (laughs) uh, we apologize for our lack of geographic knowledge. Care. (laughs) Anyway, they formed in the year 1977. They were basically all secondary school friends at the time. Members of the classic lineup that were present back in 1977 included bassist Rick Savage, guitarist Pete Willis, who played on their first three albums before being replaced by more classic guitarist Phil Collin. I thought it was a drummer. Come on, that was good. Every, Come on. Is it possible to fucking mention <laughs> Phil Collins without a Phil Collins reference? You know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts about heavy metal, and I swear to God, it hasn't happened once that Phil Collins is mentioned and somebody didn't make a stupid joke about Phil Collins. Listen, Eric, you brought me on to this for my specifically limited knowledge on the subject so that I could be your moron to whom you teach. If you bring me into the room, you're going to get the moronic references. So yes, Phil Collins does have a passing name resemblance to Genesis drummer and singer Phil Collins. Can I, can I continue? It's your show. You're going to edit it all out anyway. It doesn't fucking matter. I don't know. That was pretty good. And singer Joe Elliott. Second guitarist Steve Clark joined the band at the start of 1978. And finally, a then 15-year-old Rick Allen joined up on the drums towards the end of 1978. So does that imply that they just didn't have a drummer for a long time? No, they had some schmo. Yeah, they just had some schmo. Just prior to Alan joining the band, Def Leppard self-released a three-song EP creatively entitled The Def Leppard EP. It included a track called, you'll love this, Get Your Rocks Off, which the legendary BBC DJ John Peel played extensively on his show. Thanks to this attention, by the end of 1979, Def Leppard had received a major label deal, and they were off and running. I feel like we've gone a long way into talking about this band without discussing the name. Is there any reason oh, for this name? Yeah, it's a good question. So, Joe Elliott, as a kid, as like a elementary school student, 
used to scrawl the name Def Leppard, spelled D-E-A-F, you know, spelled correctly, mm-hmm. on his like notebooks. It was like kind of his fantasy band name. And so when he joined this group, he presented that as a band name. They, for whatever reason, decided to change the spelling, to like potentially misspell it, apparently to avoid being mistaken for a punk band, is the logic that I heard, which I don't really understand. I've never was really understood. an exit? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think they just thought that it would look like maybe that it would look like a punk name. I'm also they were big Led Zeppelin fans, so I think the misspelled Led was a big influence there. Funny, funny Eric story. Since you bring it up, I remember reading about this when I was like 12, maybe. And in my in the when I read the article, I was like, they were going to call the band Deef Leopard. Wow! Because in my uh-huh. head, I. I <laughs> so, <laughs> And, and, of course, the, the, yeah, yeah. That would so, have been better. But, but it was, de- I mean, that was just me mispronouncing. No, I know, but the, I like Deef Leopard more than Def Leppard. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, I had the right idea. I think so. Okay. So the debut album, On Through the Night, was released on March 14th, 1980. Regardless of what Joe Elliott might say about it, this is most definitely a Nawabum album. And a really good one. It isn't proto-death metal or anything, but people who are only familiar with the ultra-polished pop metal of Def Leppard's mid-80s mega-hits will probably be surprised by how comparably rough and hard-hitting On Through the Night is. While the lyrical themes are generally more Van Halen than Iron Maiden, this album pits pretty damn hard. I distinctly remember not knowing what to do with it when I was a kid back in the heyday of Hysteria. It seemed like a totally different band to me. Let's all see what it is I mean and get on down with some further assigned listening. Probably the most significant song on the debut is Wasted, which interestingly was actually released in a different, lighter version as a single in 1979. The album version is way better and is one of my favorite Def Leppard songs. The music is by guitarist Steve Clark, and the surprisingly bleak lyrics were penned by Joe Elliott. I'd suggest listeners note the iconic, totally Nawabum-style opening riff and the generally dark, heavy feel that's nicely balanced by Def Leppard's ever-present pop sensibilities. I'd also suggest a look at those lyrics, which really are quite bleak. This is not a pop metal tune about getting wasted and having a good time. John, could you read us the lyrics from the final verse in final chorus? I thought I saw you just the other day, but it couldn't be you because you had nothing to say. He's going away, they told all my friends. Well, now I'll be stuck in here till the misery ends. Wasted. I've wasted my time. Wasted. I'm shooting a line. Wasted. I'm out of my head. Wasted. I wish I was dead. I feel like this could be like the soundtrack of your life. That's a little harsh. <laughs> Too close to home. <laughs> uh, no, really. We're in some Metallica fade to black type territory here. Uh, there's also the very dark irony that guitarist Steve Clark would die tragically young just 11 years later from alcohol poisoning. Uh, with all that in mind, let's dive into some early dark Def Leppard. Pause the show, click the link in the notes, and let's get wasted. John, what do you think about early Def Leppard? So, do you remember when we were saying the defining characteristics included a certain level of technical facility? Yeah, yeah. While I will grant that this is more ability than, like, traditional punk playing, mm-hmm. this all sounds fairly pedestrian to me. Uh, yeah, they're not virtuosos. 
Def Leppard, I think, are a band that was more about perfectly polishing what they could do than about true musical precision and expertise and all that. So then I guess to to its credit, when when I hear this music, this just sounds like what I think of in my head as like, I guess, heavy metal or slightly heavier rock trademark. Uh-huh. Like it just is that sort of, it's that sound, but also because it's that sound, it just feels very blah to me. Yeah. I guess it's, it, a little bit of historical context helps because of course this is really the dawn of this sort of like, accessible, really hard rock, you know, the, basically the blah sound that you're referring to. Mm-hmm. It all comes from, you know, 1980 Nawabam bands to a large degree. I really like On Through the Night a lot. I love the song Wasted. It is a far from perfect album. These are, they were, they were kids. I mean, they were really teenagers at this point. Def Leppard also would grow exponentially in their abilities, even by their extraordinary second release, which we'll talk about in a future episode. But I do think the three songs I put on your mix, Rock Brigade, When the Walls Come Tumbling Down, and Wasted, they're all fantastic. I guess you didn't, uh, you weren't moved. No. Huh. They almost make up for things like the sycophantic second track, which I did not put on your playlist, Hello America which clearly telegraphed the commercial ambitions of the young Def Leppard, and frankly is pretty dorky. So we've met two of the most important Nawabam bands not named Iron Maiden. Saxon may not have had the sort of international career that Def Leppard or Iron Maiden have had, but all three bands were at the forefront of the Nawabam in 1980, and each ended up having long, significant, and influential careers. Now, however, we turn our attention to some of the Nawabam's darker, dustier corners. We're going to look at two bands whose wildly influential 1980 debuts, for whatever reason, marked both the start and, for all intents and purposes, the end of seemingly tremendously promising careers. We're going to talk about Diamond Head's Lightning to the Nations, an album that profoundly influenced the forthcoming American thrash metal explosion, and possibly my single favorite new album album of all, the eponymous debut of Angel Witch! John, do I ever talk about Angel Witch? Oh, God, I assume the answer is yes, but I kind of tune out everything <laughs> you say when you get going on these rants about bands you like. <laughs> so you would say that despite being my close friend who I text with every day... Literally every day. You yes. have no idea if no. I talk about Angel yeah, Witch. Yeah, you send me music all the time, and I just sort of skim past it. <laughs> really, really puts my life in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, I fucking love that band. So, John, based on what you've heard, are you a Diamond Head guy or an Angel Witch guy? Well, so you only gave me one Diamond Head I did. song versus three Angel Witch songs. Uh, yeah, I, I played my hand pretty heavy. But that being said, of the playlist that you made me for this entire episode, I think the Diamond Head song was honestly my favorite one. Yeah, you had mentioned that earlier, and I, I, it was unexpected, but very interesting. Well, aside from John, Lars Ulrich was most definitely a Diamond Head guy. He claims that it was the Diamond Head song, It's Electric, that made him want to be in a band. In fact, somehow or another, a 17-year-old Lars apparently flew over to the UK and managed to catch the last show of Diamond Head's 1981 tour, and then ended up crashing on Diamond Head singer Sean Harris's couch for the next three weeks. So Lars liked Diamond Head quite a bit, and was clearly something of a strange fellow. John, before we go any further, I suppose now would be a good time for me to confirm that you know who the hell Lars Ulrich is? I super recognize that name. I know they're a very important person. I can't remember if we've talked about them on this show or not. 
All right. Well, this is this. You'll be very pleased because this is one of our more in-depth references to a little band called Metallica. Okay, so I just know them from my own existence. Uh, yes. Aside from being something of a heavy metal super fan, Lars Ulrich was and is the drummer for Metallica. In fact, the only reason most metal fans are really aware of the existence of the band Diamond Head is due to the numerous times and places in which Metallica covered material from Lightning to the Nations. Perhaps most famously, they covered side two opener, Am I Evil? in 1984 as the B-side to the Creeping Death single from Ride the Lightning. Metallica has since also recorded covers of The Prince, It's Electric, and Helpless. I mean, that's fully half of the album that they've covered. So it seems fair to say that this album was quite an influence on the boys from the Bay Area, who actually started out as the boys from Los Angeles, though that is definitely a story for another time. There's no question but that one can clearly hear the influence of Diamond Head on early Metallica, and for that they most certainly deserve a gold star and perhaps a nice warm cup of tea. Let's do yet more assigned listening, and everyone can see and hear what I mean and what John liked so very much. A link to Diamond Head's version of Am I Evil is in the show notes. Check it out and see if you can hear a familial resemblance to Kill 'Em All era Metallica. I bet you will. Ooh, and please do note the intro. It's our good friend, English composer Gustav Holst, once more rearing his beautiful head in heavy metal circles via another metal variation on his iconic Mars bringer of war from the planets. John, it's so nice to hear from old heavy metal 101 friends like this, no? Sure. That's so nice. <laughs> Perhaps we can all meet again when we start our next podcast project, Gustav Holst 101. I would literally rather die. <laughs> okay. On that note, everyone pause the show and check out some music so that we can all answer the age-old question. Am, Am I, I evil? evil? Yes, I am. I am indeed evil. The song said so, John. Do you think I'm evil? No. Aww. You think I'm nice, don't you? Sure. I'm a sweetie. Well, Diamond Head seemed to think I'm evil. They said it about 4,000 times in the song. Anyhow, I don't know about you, but I think this song is indicative of a running problem with much of the album. It's too fucking long. I like Am I Evil. I like it a lot. But there is no good reason on God's Green Earth that this song needed to be 7 minutes and 43 seconds long. John, I'm guessing you'd at least agree with that. That's a fair criticism. So John and I were talking, and I was trying to remember why I only put one Diamond Head song on his playlist. Because I, I, as much as I like Angel Witch more than Diamond Head, I really like Lightning to the Nations. It's a great album. But the reason for that is because the only version of that album that's available on Spotify is the 2020 remake. They apparently have removed the original version from Spotify, and I cannot get lazy-ass John to go all the way to YouTube to listen to multiple tracks. That's just way outside of his wheelhouse. I feel like as the music aficionados that we are, mm-hmm. we should look to better quality audio sources <laughs> than YouTube for our musical listening and edification. I'm inclined to agree, which is why I don't understand why Brian Tatler decided to pull, apparently, all of the original versions off of all streaming sites and replace it with this really nice 2020 version. It's fine. I've listened to it, but it's just it's from... A historical standpoint, it has no value because it's from 2020. So that's why John only got one track. Anyway, long story short, this all gets at the heart of where things went wrong with Diamond Head. You see, the sadder aspects of the history of Diamond Head are tied to related problems of nepotism and bad management. 
Instead of listening to their hired professional management who had secured them contract offers from a variety of different record labels, Diamond had decided to listen to Sean Harris's mother. Yikes. Yeah, who took over as their manager Yikes. and they passed on all of those deals. Yikes. Instead of securing a record deal, Mother Harris and her boyfriend yeah, decided that Diamond Head should self-record mm. with said boyfriend acting as producer. Mm. Yeah, you, you, there's a lot of, lot of red flags mm, yeah. here, right? So they self-recorded and self-released their debut album, which was only intended to be a limited-run album that would get the band some amount of attention and hopefully a massive Iron Maiden-esque major label deal. They did eventually get signed in 1982, but by that time, the Nawabam ship had pretty well sailed, and it turned out to be only this raw, self-recorded Lightning to the Nations album that had any serious long-term impact. And, of course, as I mentioned, most of that impact really can be ascribed to Metallica's fandom more than anything else. I suppose the band did end up with something of a classic here, but it is a pretty flawed classic. I think perhaps if they had worked with a more seasoned producer, they might not have ended side one with a nearly 10-minute song tastefully titled Sucking My Love, which includes an uncomfortably vivid oral depiction, no pun intended, of the title act. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's got moaning and sex noises and stuff. It's a fucking mess. Actually, four of the seven songs on this album are well over six minutes long, and not a single one of those has any good reason to be. And yet... Despite being mismanaged and never managing to break big in any really significant way, Diamond Head still managed to be profoundly influential on one of heavy metal's most important bands, and so are still in the conversation all these years later. That's pretty neat, no? Sure. And, and you liked their song. I did. Yeah, and it's good. And you pointed out that it was pretty heavy, right? Yes. So it's a lot more heavy than the Def Leppard stuff. Yeah, and, and that's, there can be no argument here. I was talking to John while we were listening about... The fact that a lot of people would consider Diamond Head, for obvious reasons, proto-thrash metal, since they heavily influenced that movement. I hear them very much as uh, the harder side of traditional metal. But, you know, you're definitely hearing some of what's going to feed into the sort of melting pot that will become thrash metal when you hear a band like Diamond Head or, as we'll hear in a moment, Angel Witch. For the record, Lightning to the Nations was released by the band on October 3rd, 1980, and the lineup was Sean Harris, vocals, Brian Tatler, lead guitar, Colin Kimberly, bass, and Duncan Scott, drums. All songwriting is credited to Harris and Tatler. Also for the record, while I think the totality of this album had some issues, the opening title track and the closer, Helpless, are both exceptional. And the album is certainly worth a listen, particularly for any adoring Metallica fan. These guys were pretty damn important in getting that their ball a-rolling. John, do you have any further thoughts on Diamond Head before this episode's explosive, long-awaited grand finale? No. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, let's talk Angel Witch! I love this album so hard. I have absolutely wrestled, lost sleep, stared out the window into the pouring rain with a furrowed brow, etc. All of this over whether or not I could choose the eponymous debut Angel Witch album as the single best no album album of 1980 over the majestic eponymous debut of Iron Maiden. You can see why I wrestle with choices like this. Why do you need to make this choice? Wow, why this, do is, this is a self-imposed punishment. Right. No one is asking you to pick the best Nawabam album. No one's even asking you to do this podcast. You're doing all of this to yourself, man. <laughs> you're saying I am my own worst enemy? If you're causing yourself pain, this is all your own doing. Well, <laughs> after all of that, I, I, I just can't choose. They are both so damn great. 
Of course, the Iron Maiden album was just the opening salvo in one of the most important careers in the history of heavy metal, while the Angel Witch was pretty much a one and done. Sort of. Angel Witch did actually release two pretty yikes albums of limited consequence later in the 1980s, Screamin' and Bleedin' in 1985 and Frontal Assault in 1986, but those are best ignored. More importantly, a reconstituted version of Angel Witch released two very cool 21st century albums in 2013 and 2019. Those are actually definitely worth a look. All that having been said, nothing they did ever after was able to approach the monumental quality and timeliness of their debut, on which they were able to absolutely go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Iron Maiden in a very similar musical idiom. John, you've heard both those bands. What are your thoughts on Iron Maiden versus Angel Witch? So, I mean, they both definitely have a thing that they're doing at the beginning. Mm. Angel Witch seems much more committed to their bit mm. based on the listening that I've done. Uh -huh. I, don't, I mean, I guess they're both sort of concurrent, but they sound very different to me. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're writing in a very similar traditional metal style with dark themes. And, you know, one is bass-led, one's guitar-led, so that's kind of a difference. But they're different bands. I mean, there's, there's no question. They, I think they represent what could have been two really significant threads in mm. the heavy metal echelons, but alas, for reasons we'll learn in a bit, it wasn't meant to be. Because I imagine that many of our fine listeners may actually not be familiar with Angel Witch, let's see if we can't rectify that via our final assigned listening of the episode. Well, every song on this debut is great. Like Black Sabbath before them, Angel Witch are a band with an eponymous debut album which opens with a track of the same name. Angel Witch from Angel Witch by Angel Witch. Oh, God. Yes. What's not to love? Pause the podcast, click the link, and immerse yourself in the delightful deviant joy that is Angel Witch! John, you cannot tell me that that isn't a great tune. It's a good tune. It's fun. Do, do, do you want my honest yeah, opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, tell, tell me what you think. The first 15 seconds sound like someone trying to play faster than they are physically capable of. Oh, I think it's nice. It, uh, it sounds like someone stumbling a little bit. Ooh. But once you get past that, it's a good song. It's definitely the best chorus of any of the songs on the playlist. That you Super sang. memorable, yeah. And it is appropriately length as well. Yeah, and it's short and sweet and the get out. Yeah, uh, such a good band. I cannot say enough good things about this entire album. Anyone who likes early Iron Maiden will love it, and I highly recommend it to metalheads far and wide. So let's learn a bit more about these fine young lads from London before we pack it in for the day. Angel Witch formed in 1976 under the catchy moniker Lucifer. Amazingly, once again, we have a tale of managerial nepotism gone awry, as Angel Witch were mismanaged by guitarist-slash-vocalist Kevin Habern's father, who caused EMI to cancel a record deal with the band because he refused to hand them off to professional management. I do hope that, if nothing else, we all learn one invaluable lesson from this episode. Don't let your fucking parents manage your burgeoning heavy metal career. John, would you agree that that is the principal takeaway from today's episode? It's literally the only thing I've learned. <laughs> 
Well, if, if nothing else, I've done that for you, so you're welcome. Great. <laughs> Angel Witch did get an excellent non-album track, Baphomet, on the first... <laughs> it's great, right? On the first Metal for Mothers compilation. Do you remember us talking about Metal I for do. Mothers? Yeah. And I, I should say now, it was actually Neil Kay, that DJ we talked mm-hmm. about earlier, he was the one who compiled the Metal for Mothers compilations. They eventually signed with Bronze Records to release their self-titled debut, which came out in December of 1980. Angel Witch has always been singer, guitarist, songwriter Kevin Haburn's band, but the power trio lineup on the debut also consisted of Kevin Riddles on bass, keyboards, and backing vocals, and Dave Hogg on drums. This uh, explains a lot about the keyboard part. You kind of held one chord. Yeah, the yeah, it was, <laughs> it was color. It was purely color, but it was nice. I think I think it's actually tastefully used. Backing vocals. We liked uh, you like those backing vocals, right? Oh, that's, <laughs> that sounded like a group of people, though. That I'm assuming they got all him. their friends from the tavern yeah. to come in there. Yeah, but that's that's one of my favorite parts of that track. <laughs> they are an angel, bitch. They are an angel. Why did they wait? <laughs> those, those, <laughs> me, and half German. Hey, bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see people with their steins, the beer. Uh, yeah. All right, I got a little October. You've been to Europe. <laughs> Do you I know have. there are different countries? <laughs> it's a it's a landmass. It's fine. It's all one place. A lot of people like to list Angel Witch as somehow foundational to the creation of thrash and even black metal. Uh, musically, I think they fit pretty squarely into the traditional metal camp. Would you agree? They certainly don't sound like black metal. Yeah, no, they don't sound anything like black metal. However, visually, the first album certainly does telegraph some of what's to come in more extreme heavy metal circles. John, give us one last elegant flexing of your descriptive lyricism and tell us about the cover of Angel Witch's debut. I will, but before I do, I was disappointed that we didn't get to discuss the Def Leppard album cover because it was hands down the worst album cover of all the albums that you have made me listen to so far over the course of this podcast. I would actually argue that Def Leppard have pretty consistently terrible album covers. It's like almost their thing. Well, for members of our listening audience who are interested in seeing the truck with the guitar. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> in space? In space. <laughs> yeah, it's, Dumb. It's, it's, it's not great. Well, we're not, we're not, we don't focus on the negative here on this podcast. Then why am I here? <laughs> That's my foil. Uh, yeah. It is a terrible album cover, yes. yes uh, the, I, I, I Literally, I think all of Def Leppard's album covers are terrible. Angel Witch, on the other hand, pretty great album cover. Very dark. What, what do you see? It's, it's actually hard to tell what I'm looking at, yeah. if I'm honest. It, I mean, in, so black around all the edges. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of a sun in the sort of the middle background. But like very faded. It doesn't look like it's giving heat. It doesn't look like a joyful... Yeah, perhaps. Are we looking out of a cave maybe? Is that what we're seeing? We definitely seem to be underground, right? It's, it's you can hard see to us. tell what the perspective is. I mean, we got kind of a pride rock thing going on here, <laughs> depending on where we are in terms of the distance. I think there are figures near you, the bottom. Yeah, there's figures on either side. Really they're hard to make out. tell what's going on. And there's sort of a domed building with a like a torch. It's worth noting that red is really the only yes, there's, cover. Yeah, right? yeah, reddish, orange, it's hard to tell. Yeah. And then we have Angel Witch, of course, in that like sort of old English yeah. sp- spooky font. Well, it is a pretty damn evil-looking album cover. It's actually a romantic painting that was formally attributed to the 19th century British painter John Martin. 
actually it wasn't by John Martin, but that was the original attribution. It is titled. Don't we know who it's actually. No, by? no, I couldn't find. I couldn't find it. So apparently, what we, we know is that this painting is not by John Martin. Correct. It could be by literally, <laughs> literally anyone else. <laughs> it is titled "The Fallen Angels Entering Pandemonium," which is pretty damn well, metal. Fucking long ass title. I know it's a great title. And that's what we're gonna title our first black metal album. I think. No. Okay. Yeah, with your five string bass, six Rock and strings. How many times are we gonna go? Over this? I feel like every episode for the last three weeks, I've pointed out that it has six strings. You play bass? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> okay. Enough. I think we have pretty well established the awesomeness that was the explosion of the new album in 1980. On our next episode, we're going to take one last look at the new album and see how some key 1981 releases beautifully telegraphed the 80s heavy metal genre fracturing that was in the process of occurring. That's going to be such fun. Meanwhile, John, it is that time again. Could you let our adoring fans know where they can find you so that they can give you the what for you so richly deserve? If you want to find me, good luck, because I don't read any of the things sent to us at heavymetal101podcast.com. I also don't listen to the voicemails you could leave us at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast. You can also find and dox us at any of our social media profiles through Facebook at heavymetal101podcast, Twitter at heavy underscore 101, or Instagram at heavymetal101podcast. Come on down and throw virtual tomatoes at John. Meanwhile, John, any final thoughts for the day? No. <laughs> Eric, as always, <laughs> I remain thoughtless. <laughs> Wondrous. Ta-ta, everybody. <laughs> uh, good times, good times. 